Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Play ball! It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Welcome back, everybody. After a little hiatus, we're back on 30 with Murdy. Let me start by saying that I hope everyone continues to be safe and healthy while focusing mainly on the radio shows on WFAN for the last several months. I've been away from this product for a short while. Now that the baseball season is concluded, I'll focus a little more energy here. I wanted to bring some attention to the big announcement regarding voting results that will come to our attention on Tuesday. No, no, not that one. I'm talking about the Gold Glove Awards. It's the kickoff to the baseball awards season, and while there's always great discussion on what this particular award means or doesn't mean, it is still an award with a long tradition, and there is still some significance to it in the age of data. With that in mind, I wanted to have a discussion on defense and the data analysis of it, so on this episode, we chat with Mark Simon, a researcher and writer at Sports Info Solutions. Mark spent almost two decades on the research staff at ESPN and is one of the most respected statistical analysts in our industry, and now his work at Sports Info Solutions includes the Fielding Bible the Fielding Bible Awards. There are two Yankees among the Gold Glove finalists, Gio Rochella at third base and Clint Frazier in right field. Small samples have a lot to do with their inclusion here, but so does their higher level of play in 2020. We'll get into that and more about the defensive issues and questions surrounding the Yankees, from Glaber Torres and his rough season at shortstop to DJ LeMahieu and where he fits in best. We'll also chat about Gary Sanchez and his defensive struggles. Later, a discussion on the Yankees of the 1970s and how they're likely underrepresented in Cooperstown compared to other great championship teams. And while it may be too late, there is potential for some added inductees there. Finally, a word on Aaron Boone, the Yankees manager who spent a few years as an ESPN analyst and worked closely with Mark before leaving the booth for the dugout three years ago. All of that here. I hope you enjoy this discussion with Mark Simon from Sports Info Solutions. Mark, let's start with the Gold Glove Awards. It's a little bit of a different format this year, but for local interest for the Yankees, there are two people in the finals here, Gio Urshela and Clint Frazier. Let's start with Urshela. Last year, a lot of the talk was the metrics didn't love him, even though visually he was making great plays. What caught up this year, and you know where does he rank? So I think that what happened in the past is that his good plays are so good that it makes you forget about everything else. And you forget about situations where a ball gets passed him down the line uh, or a ball beats him in the shortstop third base hole. Uh, This year, for the 60 games, the good plays were there in high volume, number one. And then number two, the balls that were getting past him, the ones that you would forget about, they didn't. He made the routine plays on those. And as a result, the the metrics went up 
a little bit. Uh, I don't know that he's necessarily going to win it. I think that Isaiah Kiner-Falefa put up really good numbers in Texas this year. Uh, very impressive. Uh, but I think Urshela, I think he's deservedly in the conversation this year with Matt Chapman out of the mix, uh, certainly. And how about Clint Frazier? This is a massive turnaround from what we saw in 2019. I think even people like me who watched him play every day and saw the improvement, credited him with the improvement, but still a little surprised to see him in this list of finalists. So this is where the 60-game season and the weirdness of everything really comes into play. And I will acknowledge, and I will note, too, that I am on the committee that hand, that is part of the SDR calculation uh, division. Uh, so I, there are only so many things I can say. But in this situation, Clint Frazier is being judged here against other left fielders. And there aren't a lot of left fielders that necessarily play every day. He's being judged on like 50, 60 plays. So it's not... It's not 162 games. And in 50 to 60 plays, he was really good. And I'll, I'll quantify it for you. Think of it this way. Let's say that you and I would say that he had 65 or so opportunities to make plays. This year, his catching was he caught 50-ish of them. Previous years, that number is like in the 40s. And those balls that were getting past him, those turn into doubles. So that's why like a defensive run save number for him this year will be a lot better than it was last year, because if you add up the eight, nine, 10 balls that he missed over a period of time, that's five, six runs. That's nine, 10 runs over 162 games. That could be 15 runs. That's where the numbers look really ugly this year. Those 10 extra catches in that small group of like 65 plays, uh, they make him look, uh, they make him look better. Interesting uh, analysis there, and we find out the winners of the Gold Glove Awards on November 3rd. Um, Glaber Torres as the Yankees shortstop has, is a big conversation point this year. Uh, saw it last year in a smaller sample, and I guess this is a small sample too, but when he filled in for Didi Gregorius, noticed some of the routine plays not being made. He had a bad spring training. Uh, he did not have a good regular season. And it's at least part of the discussion now. I don't know if it will uh, have any kind of impact moving forward as to the decision process, but it's at least part of the discussion. Is Glaber Torres good enough at shortstop for the New York Yankees? What do the numbers tell you? And a point on Didi Gregorius when we, when we uh, conclude this point. Sure. Um, so I think the thing that you need to remember with Glaber and I think that people get very impatient, is he's only, what, 23, yeah. 22, 23, 24 years old? And that's still an unfinished product as far as defense goes. If I remember right, we did a story uh, a year or so ago where we looked and defense peaks at like 25-ish. So I think he still has time to grow. And I, I think that it's, it's dangerous to make harsh judgments on him at this point. And I think it's interesting because both New York teams are in this scenario with the Yankees with Torres, the Mets with Rosario. And uh, in that first season, when he first came up, he was making plays from all sorts of angles. He looked great when they put defensive shifts on. So the potential is there, I think, for him to be really good. For whatever reason, he's not good now going to his left. He's not good on the double play. I don't know the whys and the hows of that. That's something for an infield coach. Uh, to talk about, but I can see that there are holes, but at the same time, I know that there's something there that can be unlocked and it becomes a question, like I'm thinking of it from a pitching perspective, like look at like Lucas Gelito. 
uh, and the struggles that he went through. And then all of a sudden he figured it out. Someone got him on the right track and he turned into this ace pitcher. I think for a hitter, for a guy that's 23, I think you still have to uh, think things out with him and not make a snap judgment. Uh, remember, too, he's being graded against a curve when you look at the defensive metrics, because there are all these other second basemen or shortstops in this case uh, that are really good. So he's not Angelton Simmons. He's not Carlos Correa. He's not uh, all these guys that are justifiably ahead of him. He's got to he's got to be really good to get close to that. And I, uh, even a, an average shortstop is still a phenomenal athlete. And I think at this point, if you could just get him to average, that would be good. Was Didi slipping uh, before he left the Yankees? Yes. Um, it was in the arm. And that, I think, comes through with Tommy John surgery, sure. right? Why he needed it. And then the aftermath of that. Uh, he, has, uh, he has been in the past a very good shortstop range-wise, covering a lot of ground. The last two years, that slipped a little bit, uh, including last year in Philadelphia. Uh, he does look like he is not quite the same that he used to be. Uh, and I think that's part of the reason why the Yankees ended up moving on initially um, and making the move and not making a larger long-term investment in Didi Gregorius. So your analysis kind of proved that out as well. But when you look at individual players, it's also part of a larger puzzle. And the Yankees infield is kind of a weird puzzle. So you're talking about the potential that Glaber Torres still has uh, and his ability to improve. But in the puzzle that is the Yankees infield, are they better with DJ LeMahieu moving to first base, Glaber Torres moving back to second base, and let's say a free agent like Angelto Simmons taking over a shortstop. Well, that would, be an, that would be an interesting scenario. I think the good thing with LeMahieu is that at some point, there's going to be a point where you're going to want to do that, just because he's going to get to the point of being old. Um, does that work better? I'm thinking about it, especially in the context of Luke Voigt. And I would say that Probably. Andrelton slipped a little bit this year. He's been a little bit uh, injury prone. So if he's the target, eh, I, I don't, that would be an interesting uh, thing to ponder. Certainly, I'm sure that the analytics team would weigh in uh, considerably on that. I don't know where I necessarily stand on that because I think that Glaber Torres, as I said, can get better. And I think that LeMahieu is very good at second. And you kind of have to, I guess, sacrifice with, with Luke Voigt a little bit. Um, that's a, that's a good conundrum. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good conundrum to have, uh, moving forward. The, the, so the short stump market gets really interesting, not this year, but certainly sure. the year after with all those guys that come out. So maybe you get a stopgap guy for a year and you try that. I don't know. That, that's uh, good luck, Brian. <laughs> yeah, he gets the big money, uh, <laughs> not us. What, what about DJ LeMahieu, though? I mean, obviously such a tremendous hitter. Where is his best value? I mean, he's a guy who we've seen. He can slide over to first. He can slide over to third. And, and, and he's a natural second baseman. That's where the Yankees are playing him most. But if you're trying to, you know, as I said, put this puzzle together, is second base simply where he fits best because of the other puzzle pieces? Uh, I I would lean yes on that just because he's so good uh, at second base, even though the last two years that's come down a little bit. When he's, uh, I, I think the thing that you have with him is you feel you have like a level of certainty when a ball is hit to him that you don't have with uh, certainly a shortstop and you don't have certainly with first base. And he can cover ground and make up ground two years ago I'm um, looking at the second base numbers right now. He was very good in our metrics. 
uh, at fielding balls that were hitting the first base, second base hole. So he was already making up ground for, for the first baseman that the first baseman couldn't get to. And as long as he's still good at doing that, I feel like second base would be the, the spot that I would want to put him in. It's funny you mentioned the, uh, the idea of, of making the play, the ball that's hit to you. I always use that as an example uh, of watching Derek Jeter play. And he took a lot of, lot of hits, as soon as, especially as the metrics started to advance. He would take a lot of hits from the people about his defense. But what I remember, and in contrast to Gleyber Torres, I never worried about a ball hit to him with two men on base in the eighth inning. You always knew he was making the play that should be made, the routine play. And I thought that as he got older, that's certainly where his strengths lie. Yeah, that, so that's the eye test versus the stat yeah. test. And I was thinking about how to introduce it to a WFAN listener, kind of like what we do. And I was thinking about the, and I'll, I'll use it for Jeter, that John Sterling will say that Jeter makes this play 99 times out of 100. We're the people who would tell you, no, John, it's more like 94, 95. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, um, and right, and it um, uh, it ended up showing up later on. As, and it, yes. it's, it's a, it's a not an older man's position either. I mean, you no. talk about Gleyber Torres being 20, 23, turning 24. Um, most people, as you age past 28, 29, 30, that's not a position that you, you should be holding down. And I think that's probably where the industry goes going forward. Yep. You're not locking somebody into that position till age 40. Yeah, uh, short stuff in center field. I was looking at center field for this year, and there were basically no everyday center fielders older than 31 this season. They're all, it's a young player's position. And there are a few center fielders that are out there that are 30, 31, uh, that uh, they may be in for a rough time this free agent season. As you and I speak, Brett Gardner is a free agent. The Yankees declining his option. Uh, When people hear this, I don't know what his future will be because I feel like it's a, it's a quick fix to get Brett Gardner back into a Yankee uniform. It's just negotiating a number and figuring out a, a, a role as an extra outfielder shouldn't be all that hard, given where the Yankees are. Um, but I feel like he's always underappreciated because he's not a big home run hitter and he suffers through major slumps. Uh, August and September every year, he tends to wear down, I think, simply because of his physique and his style of play. Uh, it tends to drag him out during the course of a year. It shows out year after year. But his value to the team is something that the Yankees have long seen. They continue to bring him back, and there's a reason why, isn't there? Yeah, if you look at the body of work in totality, he is now at 43 wins above replacement. In Yankees history, that is 24th all time. That puts him ahead of Don Mattingly, which I'm sure you know, the, the fan who is your age, the fan who is my age, mid-40s, is going to say, I don't know about that. Yeah, that right. seems kind of absurd. But if you look at the offensive contribution and the defensive contribution in combination and the availability that he had in playing as often as he did and reaching base at the rate that he did and being a consistently excellent defender in left field and being good enough in center field, uh, he's, he's done He's done amazingly well for himself. So the first two picks in the 05 draft were Justin Upton and Alex Gordon, and Brett Gardner has a higher wins above replacement than both of them. Wow. So uh, his value, and I, I actually, 
he inspired a question that I, I haven't, we haven't looked into yet, but I asked someone to do it who's smarter than me, that the idea that there's so much more value in the seven-pitch out than the four-pitch out. And think about all the times that he made a seven-pitch out and worked a pitcher for three, four, five extra pitches uh, with all the foul balls that he hit and the deep, uh, the deep counts that he worked consistently, that there's probably a value there that isn't necessarily put into wins above replacement or any of the metrics that you might study that I think just bumps them up a little bit even more. Uh, it would also make sense to me that if the Yankees, for whatever reason, said no, that he would be in Philly tomorrow. Yeah, makes sense. The, uh, but, but you're right. I think the idea that like not every strikeout is created equal, right? Gardner strikes right. out a lot, but rarely are they three-pitch strikeouts. No. A lot of times they are the lengthier at-bats that, okay, he struck out, but boy, did that pitcher have to work hard. And if Gardner is doing that out of the nine hole, guess what? DJ LeMahieu is up next, and the pitcher doesn't have any room to breathe. And Aaron Judge is after that. So how hard he had to work to get through Brett Gardner, now all of a sudden the wheels yes. are spinning again because he now has to go attack the next hitter. Absolutely. I think it's it's a larger effect that uh, that results in a Blake Snell being taken out of the game in the Oof. fifth or sixth <laughs> inning when maybe he shouldn't be. Uh, it's it uh, you saw it with the Dodgers hitters working uh, pitchers, not necessarily in that in the World Series game six, but just uh, in general that I think that there is it might be small. But I think there's something to it. He's he's a very likable player. Like I guess he's like this generation's Paul O'Neill kind of player. Yeah, uh, he's he's. I like him a lot. Well, and it's funny because I looked at the you know the the WAR numbers that you looked at the top twenty five numbers uh, for New York Yankees history. He's inched past Jorge Posada, and remember this yep. is a cumulative um, cumulative award. So it could technically, if he has a terrible year, go drop him back a little bit. Yes, if he has a negative. But if you take a look at players who began their Yankees careers this century, there are on the top twenty five list. You have Cano, Gardner, and A Rod. Are the only three that began as Yankees this century. Gardner, um, you know, A. Rod began his career before 2000. But you know, the Yankees list is obviously littered with guys like Gehrig and Mantle and Dimaggio, Ruth, all those people. Um, but he does occupy a space there, as you said, in a in a metrically favorable world that values his production. And so, just throwing him away after a 60 game season doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, and I believe that his offensive numbers, uh, if you balance them against like hard hit and th- and line drive and things of that sort, that there were reasons to believe that he wasn't going to hit one, you know, one eighty, one ninety uh, next season. One forty-seven is another number, and Gary Sanchez hit that. But defensively is where his issues seem to come up, and they come up mostly because he hit one forty-seven. You know, if he's hitting two ninety, I think it's a lot easier to swallow whatever you know with 35, 40 homers. It's a lot easier to swallow whatever he's going to do defensively. Um, where where do you Sanchez first of all cut down his pass balls and his wild pitches pretty dramatically from earlier in his career? Um, there was a lot went into this year about him uh, about his framing and stealing lower strikes. As an overall picture of Gary Sanchez defensively, um, the all, all the things we see they're glaring. But there are a lot of things we don't necessarily see that don't show up and speak as loudly a defensive picture. What do you see when you analyze Gary Sanchez defensively compared to the rest of the catchers? Uh, so he's a little on the meh side, <laughs> I guess, is, is a nice way to, to put it right now. 
um, we have uh, measures for a whole bunch of different things. And the stolen base uh, deterrence has always been, at worst, like, okay. So that, I think that, that one is fine. Um, bunt defense, I don't think you have to worry about guys bunting too yeah. much anymore. He's, he's all right at that. Uh, the, the wild pitch pass ball thing was a major problem, uh, as we know, in 2017, 2018. The problem is that it feels like he can't uh, fix it without it bringing his pitch framing numbers down a bit, um, which is odd, and I don't know necessarily what to make of it. In 2018, he was, in the year that he had the biggest struggles, I think, with, you know, wild pitches and pass balls, he was a very good pitch framer by uh, the statistical measures that we use. We haven't seen that since. And again, it's kind of the, I guess it's the glaberish kind of thing for me, that, like, there's something good there, and they need to just... Um, they need you to just kind of keep going with it and and figure it out. Like I think he's too good a uh, hitter potentially right. uh, to to just toss away. There's something there. Maybe it's it's in his head at this point. Maybe it's playing in New York that's problematic hmm. for him. I, that's a, that's a psychological thing that I I can't necessarily get into. Uh, I can tell you though that right now he is a meh defensive catcher in the. If you were going to look at the guys, the you know the thirty-five-ish guys that play every day, he's bottom six, bottom seven, bottom ten. Yeah, uh, right now, and that and that that in Yankee world, that doesn't cut it. No, and when you're trying to contend for a world championship, the the new stance this year that was designed to steal lower strikes was there a big enough sample to determine what kind of an impact that had this year? So looking at the Statcast numbers for that, they get a little more specific than I can get instantaneously from our numbers. Uh, Sanchez appears to be in the average to all right uh, category when it comes to the stuff at the bottom of the strike zone. And I would imagine that that's a significant improvement over years past. The issue that he had in the 60 games or the amount of games that he played this season was the side to side stuff, the the corners. And uh, those numbers are not quite what they should be uh like a, a here's an an example i'm looking at like higashioka on the corners he's like 10 percentage points ish better at getting those pitches than sanchez is mm. and that like higashioka is an upper echelon at that yeah. uh you know bordering on elite uh that's the difference between that and and meh or average and uh, the point i want to make too on something like that is like when you say okay 10 percentage points better well what is that you don't know that you would necessarily see that in one or two games you probably would a little bit where you where he doesn't get that one call but over 162 games that's going to be a large number of pitches that Higashioka would have gotten that Sanchez uh, is not getting. And I'm sure that is frustrating for uh, the Yankees to try to deal with at this point. And it's probably important to point out that as we talk about a 60-game schedule, Higashioka did not play very many games either. So the sample size there is really small too. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I want to get into something that you mentioned to me about uh, the Bill James Handbook, which is going to be available starting November 1st. And there's an essay in there about the 1970s Yankees. Um, 
they uh, they t- we tend not to look at them quite so much anymore because the '90s Yankees were so successful. We kind of forget about the '70s guys every once in a while. Uh, but their representation in the Hall of Fame is the subject of this essay you're talking about. Now you've got Reggie Jackson, you've got Goose Gossage, but there are cases to be made for a lot of other guys that uh, you know fall into the borderline category. Greg Nettles, <laughs> Willie Randolph, Thurman Munson have all gotten, you know, the idea of, okay, are these guys worthy? Uh, what's their candidacy? And it gets muddied because of the offensive production of the generations that came after them. What, um, what kind of conclusions were reached in, in this when you think about the 1970s Yankees and their representation in Cooperstown? So Bill does one or two really big pieces per year for this book. Uh, And this one's pretty cool. Uh, He looked at every team and how many Hall of Famers are on every team throughout Major League history. And then he looked at like the records of those teams and the successes that those teams had. And as you said, uh, the 70s Yankees uh, came out at the bottom or near the bottom of that because of, of what you just brought up. And I guess the the thing on that is that it is somewhat amazing that a team that would have won two championships, 77 and 78, and played in the 76 World Series and played in the 80 ALCS uh, and had this extended run that went to 81 with the World Series, uh, that the the Gidrys of the world, the Randolphs of the world, the Nettles, et cetera, aren't in. One specific player on that. Willie Randolph basically played in the wrong era, yeah. I guess, which is a little weird um, to say because it, it would be it would be interesting to put him in this era with no given that he didn't really have any power. But Willie Randolph had an on-base percentage that was about a hundred points higher than his batting average, which is terrific. And I and I'm sure you've talked to him about this. I talked to him about it once that uh, the sabermetricians really, really like uh, Willie Randolph, even if Willie Randolph, when he managed the Mets, didn't necessarily <laughs> embrace the sabermetricians. Uh, he's a he's a 65 win player by baseball references war, which puts him on a level. We were talking about Brett Gardner before he's, he's basically one and a half gardeners, uh, which puts him among the best in Yankees history. Nettles is, I think someone that is similar, similarly favorable. If Thurman Munson had, uh, played, uh, he would certainly be looked at, uh, differently. And then you'd be talking about, uh, four and five Hall of Famers from those teams uh, as opposed to the the couple that they wound up having. I think one of the things that Bill did was like he looked at like there were some Padres teams and some Expos teams that are basically as well represented as those 70s Yankees teams, even though those teams didn't win anything. Right, right. Yeah, and I mean, Dave Winfield came and joined the Yankees at the end of that yep. run in 81, but I mean, for yep. a short time, Dave Winfield, Ozzie yep. Smith were on the same team, and they were yes, not very exactly. good teams, right? Yep. The, um, so the Bill James Handbook, what else, anything else interesting in there for fans that you think uh, would, uh, would pique their interest? Yeah, so we wrote, uh, I think there are about 50 essays reviewing the season uh, that are in there. Uh, and just on things like all of the weird stats or the uh, the successes of players on the defensive side. I'm trying to think of a Yankee-specific 
example, uh, nothing's coming to mind, but the one thing that people tend to gravitate to with those books are the projections. We project yeah. for 2021. Uh, I don't have them in front of me. That's got to uh, be really could... hard, though, coming off of the yes. season that you're having. Project. I mean, yes. how can you make projections? I think a lot of times the people who, even people who uh, fall in line with sabermetrics have a hard time getting wrapping their mind around projections because there are so many you know it's basically fortune telling and that's really hard to do sometimes but doing it off of this year wow that's gotta right be hard. like let me give you i'll give you one <laughs> that that i'm thinking about uh, is jackie bradley jr for example uh so he's a free agent this year he went uh numbers offensive 726 ops 717 ops 738 ops 814 in the in 55 games. So he had this big jump, which he attributes to, he kind of flattened out his swing, took more line drives, went more to the opposite way. Uh, you can, you can see that in the offensive numbers, but you have a track record before that for him of three full seasons where he was at a certain level and stayed there. Now, do I believe in the 60? Or do I believe in the 450 games? And there are, he's far from the only player that has this for this year. Look at the right. batting averages for the Yankee Everybody. guys, like, yeah. like Sanchez, right? Yeah. Like there are some ridiculous, there are some guys that are at ridiculous valleys that you don't know what that means. Like, does that mean that they're sunk? Like Nolan, so Nolan Arenado and Francisco Lindor both have both guys who are in interesting contractual situations. Arenado's got one, Lindor's looking for one. Uh, they had down years offensively, and it it's like, what are you supposed to make of that? Is that an injury? Is that a long term effect? What are what are we going to do? Good luck to the GMs this year. Yeah, there are way too many things that go into that. Um, I want to leave on this, Mark. Um, you spent a lot of time at ESPN on Baseball Tonight, and one of the guys you worked alongside was Aaron Boone. And, um, you know, he's been the Yankee manager for a few years now and has had some level of success there. But I'm curious what you saw from Aaron Boone working alongside of him as an analyst and as a guy who, you know, kind of started to embrace and digest all the information to go along with his vast family background on the field. So there were a couple of things. One is that in the very first meeting that he walked in, in fact, the very first sentence that I think he, he said in a Baseball Tonight show meeting was, what's the sample size? To something that we were talking about. And I was like, well, all right, John Cruck doesn't typically ask that. Harold <laughs> Reynolds doesn't typically ask that. This guy's a little different, and I was—I—I I, I can remember—I can remember exactly where I was, and I can remember that the the corners of my mouth perked up uh, at hearing that. So then, a, a couple of weeks later, I said, "Aaron, I read an article recently. Um, I won't say what the subject was, uh, but I, I was curious if I could get your take on it." And this was like a three-page piece; it wasn't like something that was short. And he was like, "Sure." And I gave it to him. He went back to the hotel that night, came back the next day, and he proved to me that he had read the article. Mm -hmm. And I appreciated that as well. And then you get to the personability uh, factor with him, which is that uh, like, he literally treated everyone the same, like from the production assistants and the researchers all the way up to the producers and the directors. He would go to lunch or dinner with anybody. It didn't matter. And... Uh, when he watched games, he reacted the same way that 
the fans in the room did. Mm -hmm. Like he would scream at a great play. He would get all excited. My favorite thing, though, was he said this to me once and I, I had to we had to do something about it. He said, I remember all my home runs. And I was really? like, what? And I, I said, all right, let's let's work this out here. And I was like, all right, your 51st home run was hit on whatever the date was. I would say he got, we probably did a dozen of them, and he probably nailed seven or eight. Mm -hmm. And then the ones that he didn't nail, he was pretty much like one series off. Like he would huh. know, uh, he would know the road trip, and he would know when the road trip was and what he was doing. And it was crazy that he had this memory for every home run that he hit. And I just thought that that was really cool that he could uh, do that. So I would imagine that he's someone who's going to be able to relate well to players for a long time, like whether he's 50 years old or 60 years old, kind of like Dusty. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he's going to be able to relate to the younger player uh, for a long time because I think he'll make the effort and he'll keep up on uh, what he needs to keep up on to, to relate to the younger player. So um, it, it's weird because I did work with him for a long time, but I feel very strongly that he's going, in the end, he's going to be judged as a very successful manager, even though I'm sure people are not happy about him doing uh, what happened with Davey Garcia and such. <laughs> yeah. See, it's funny. I only remember one home run he hit. That's... Uh, <laughs> And it's, you know what, it's, it's the one where like, he'll talk about it, but he would much rather talk about like 50 of the other ones. I'm sure he hit that many. Wow. He's better than I thought. I got to go look him up. Listen, Mark, thanks so much for the time. Sports Info Solutions has all this great stuff. And the Bill James Handbook is available from actasports.com, wherever you buy books. Thank you so much. You got it. My thanks to Mark Simon of Sports Info Solutions. You can follow him on Twitter at Mark A. Simon Says. Lots of great nuggets and analysis there, especially during the baseball season. I want to urge you to check out some other stuff coming your way. While it's not officially in podcast form, you can get regular shows on the Yankees and Mets and other baseball talk with me and Ed Coleman. It's titled very appropriately, me and Eddie C. And you can find it on the WFAN.com homepage on a regular basis. Last week, we wrapped up the World Series. This week, we look ahead to some off-season dealings now that the Mets are officially under new ownership and how that will play into things moving forward. Also, check out my tab on the same WFAN.com homepage to catch up on any columns or audio features throughout the off-season. And be sure to follow me on Twitter at YankeesWFAN for info, insights, and general charm and wit that you simply can't live without. I'll also keep you posted there on upcoming radio shows, TV appearances, and the like. And as always, make sure you subscribe to and review 30 with Murdy and keep coming back for more. You can check out the archive at radio.com or Apple Podcasts for more. Be well, stay safe, and thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Sweeney Murdy. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic. Bye. 
and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.